0: All right, it's no secret that I love football. Uh, I think if you have been here any significant amount of time, it's probably obvious to you that I love football. Football means something to me. The game, I know it's just a game, and it is just a game, but football means something to me to me growing up in the state of Alabama it is ingrained it is woven into the fabric of your childhood football is at all levels okay football is ingrained into what it means to be a child growing up at school there's all these pep rallies and at at school there's all these fundraisers and here's one bin and you put all the money in this bin for if you're an Alabama fan and here's a here's another bin if you're an Auburn fan you put your money in this bin and so they start pitting the children off of one another all week long who can give the most money and then that dad comes as an Auburn fan and puts the ridiculous check in there and you're just like okay all right fine Auburn has better degrees and more money fine but we win in football Football means something to a lot of us here tonight. I know we've got some Georgia dogs in here tonight that are nervous as can be this week, right, with the game that they have coming their way. Football means a lot to us here in the South. And I think we can all, at some level, even if you don't like sports, at some level you can understand that the people around you may like the game of football. And my family is a football family. My, one of my grandfathers is in the Alabama High School Hall of Fame because of his exploits in football. I remember going to his enshrinement or whatever it was when I was a little kid. And the Alabama High School Hall of Fame, I, I, I have pride in that. That's, that's, that's something cool that I think about my granddad being in. My other granddad won a couple of state championships for uh, Viger High School in Alabama. So you've got my grandparents and then my dad, he played football both ways. He wore the number 78, there he is on the screen. He, He was a great football player as well. And so because he wore the number 78, guess what number all of his children wore? The number 78, right? And it was this, you know, it was just tradition that the Hogans that come through the program wear number 78 in tribute to our dad. And so all three of us played football, and we enjoyed to play football. In fact, football is the reason I'm so big tonight. I was a scrawny kid. I was 6'3", 160 pounds. The football coach comes to me and says, my sophomore year son, if you you don't put on weight, you're never going to play because of this screen here I didn't want to be the only kid at Thanksgiving that didn't play football so I started to eat and it's football's fault okay it's not my fault It's football's fault It's that coach's fault right but football means something to a lot of us tonight and in my family at least football runs almost in the blood I think the thing about football is football highlights how each different player has a specific set of, of roles placed on them. Every different position has a very important job to fulfill. If every position in football has, more than any in any other sport in my opinion, a specific role given to each player. Each person on the team is given and, and, and has a design for what their role is supposed to be and what is expected of them. And there are many roles on a football team. On the screen here is Tom Brady. You know, some people believe that that the quarterback role is the most important position on a football field. These are the guys who get all the press. These are the guys that you hear their names even if you don't know the sport. These are the Tom Brady's, the Peyton Manning's, the Patrick Mahomes, the... The Joe Montanas, these are the names that you know whether you watch football or not because these are the ones that get all the press, they get all the spotlight, they get all the attention, and rightfully so, right? It's right that they get the attention because they are the ones that if they are great, their team is usually great. If they do well, then the whole team does well. And conversely, when, when they are bad, the team does bad. When they don't play well, when they don't fulfill their role right, the team is usually going to lose. You know, the thing about quarterbacks is we learned in the 2009 movie The Blind Side, if you love this movie, like I do, you learn in this movie that without the left tackle, the quarterback, how much does he mean? This much. Unless there is someone willing to block and willing to throw their bodies into another defender to protect this guy, to protect his blind side, the quarterback is rendered useless. I don't care how fast he is. I don't care how good his arm is. We learn from this movie in the life of Michael Orr and all the offensive linemen, and this is spoken as a true offensive lineman, right? But we learn that without offensive linemen, without other people... Filling other certain roles, the quarterback is rendered useless. There is no star quarterback without an equally valuable left tackle or right tackle, depending on which arm he throws with. When we look at the restoration movement tonight, I think this is a correlation and a parallel that we can draw from our everyday life, an illustration that that we can look to, as we think about the restoration movement tonight because in the restoration movement there is a clear star-studded quarterback so to speak in the name alexander campbell the quarterback who gets all the spotlight and receives all the attention this is him alexander campbell is the one that history shines on and all the lights are, are, are pointed on him and he gets all the attention and that's rightfully so because as we think about Alexander Campbell he made unprecedented plays for the team so to speak if you'll follow me with this uh, analogy a little bit further Alexander Campbell is the one who became the ultimate face of the movement however just like a real, a quarterback in real life Alexander Campbell would have been rendered useless without Barton W. Stone. Barton Warren Stone. Perhaps it seems ridiculous for us tonight to to put these two men's lives in in such a way. I just hope it helps us understand, and I think it draws an excellent frame of mind for us as we look at these two men, because when you think about these two men, have you ever heard someone call it stonism? I don't think so. Have you ever heard somebody call it Campbellism? I have. you ever heard somebody call somebody a stonite? I have not. Have you heard someone call someone a Campbellite? I have. And there's the example that I'm trying to draw. People, when they think of us, the critics, when they talk about us, they they, they call our theology Campbellism. When they call us as a people, they call us Campbellites. And that's because Campbell is, so to speak, the quarterback. And Stone is, so to speak, the left tackle. I think if we look at our history this way, though, we've made a grave mistake. Because some of us look at our own history this way as if this is the truth. And I think we make an incredible mistake by looking at history that way our history that way because when we think about it that way we are just as uneducated as the critics who knew nothing about our movement because when we think about Barton W. Stone Barton Stone was restoring the church in America he was already starting a movement in America years before Alexander Campbell ever set foot American soul. Barton W. Stone was already causing a movement to, to occur in America years before Alexander ever set foot here. Years before Alexander would go to the school at Glasgow that we talked about last week, and years before he would get in, in, encounter this man, this, this professor, Greville Ewing, years before Greville Ewing could mold Alexander, and years before Alexander, would come over to America. Stone was already in Kentucky and in Ohio preaching restoration theology. And tonight, as we get into our study tonight, in America, frustrations are already boiling over years before Campbell ever makes it to America frustrations with denominationalism and and sectarianism and all of the different things going on in religion and Christianity in that day the tempers were already boiling over tonight as we get introduced to Barton W Stone but before we do that before we get into our study tonight on Barton W Stone and some of the uh, more important things that we can learn from his life let's talk about where we've come from from this moment so far to to get to this moment tonight in phase one of our study we talked about the introduction to the movement and we talked about the biblical basis for restoration god expects and god's word shows time and time again a pattern for us to follow when things get off the rails and that pattern is to restore the church to what god intended for the church to be what is that intention in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27 that we might be holy and without blemish a glorious church without spot or wrinkle that was the intent that God had for his church and the way that we understand what that means is we have to look we have to take a step back and we have to look at everything that we do and practice and believe and we have to ask is this a departure to the right is this a departure to the left Is this adding? Is this taking away? Is this binding? Is this loosening where where God has not bound or loosened? And we have to ask that question and we have to examine and we have to look at ourselves and our hearts and answer those honestly. That was phase one of our study. Phase two of our study was the foundation of our movement. Before we can talk about our movement with Campbell and Stone, we have to understand how Campbell and Stone ever got to where they were. And so we have to go all the way back to the beginning in Rome when when all of these different edicts were allowing Christianity to to become the national religion, the only religion of the day, which led to a thousand years of the Roman Catholic Church influencing the church and and adding and taking away and loosening and binding and departing to the right and departing to the left. And, And it led to a spiritually illiterate world then we talked about how when it comes to the reformation without the reformation there would have never been a restoration and then we started talking about the roots of our movement that we can find in the country of scotland last week when we talked about john glass and the sandeman brothers and the haldane brothers and greville ewing and and how they taught congregationalism and what that means is that each congregation is responsible for governing themselves individually. It's not up to some of a uh, governing body to render down uh, uh, opinions and to render down uh, justice. It's, it's up to each individual congregation to be run autonomously. That's what congregationalism means. They also taught about individualism, how it's not up to for some Uh, authority figure to tell you whether or not you are saved but that each individual Christian seeks their own salvation with fear and trembling as Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 says and that brings us to our study tonight as we start phase three of our study to be continued the formation of the movement now that we've talked about the foundation we're able to sort of form our movement in our study. We're ready to see our movement start to take form and, and, and the frame that we can see. And as we start, we got to realize that when we get into America and we start thinking about uh, what's going on in America, and we, we leave Scotland behind, we leave Europe behind, and we, and we go over to America, we've got to realize that the number one thing, number one thing that the restorers were trying to do Denominationalism. They were trying to leave denominationalism. See, remember back in Scotland last week, we were talking about the Glass and the Sandemans and the Haldanes and the Ewings, how they were formerly a part of the Presbyterian denomination. Right? We talked about how the Presbyterian Church was the uh, church of Scotland. It was the official church of Scotland at the time. But when we look at America tonight, we can see that these teachings of the people in Scotland that were sent over, these teachings were, were molding not only the people in the Presbyterian faith, but people of all sorts of different denominations. Not just for Presbyterians, but for Methodists and for Baptists and for a lot of other denominations. Remember last week when we were talking about the Sandeman brothers and how they would send publications over to America for them to read? They would send publications and writings and, and all of these thoughts and ways of interpreting scripture and, and this idea of congregationalism. Remember, they would send these publications overseas to America. Well, when people would read these, they would say, yeah, you know what? This makes sense. It makes sense that that we should be able to govern ourselves and no other person or, or, or body should be able to tell us what, what our body does. and." shouldn't shouldn't be able to tell us what we should do as a congregation, but that we should be run autonomously. People in America started loving this idea and and loving the truth that these people from Scotland were teaching, the truth found in God's Word. But two people really early on really stand out from the rest. Obviously, there there are numerous figures that we could talk about, numerous figures we could look at. But I just want to talk about two tonight. And that's James O'Kelly and Rice Haggard. James O'Kelly and Rice Haggard. Both of these men were members of the Methodist church, the, the Methodist denomination. They, they weren't Presbyterian. They, they weren't Catholic. They, they were a part of what John Wesley started. And so these men were found themselves in America, in the northeast part of our country. What happens is John Wesley... He says that no longer is Jesus the head of the church. John Wesley puts Francis Asbury as the head of the Methodist Church. John Wesley doesn't say Jesus is the head of the church anymore. In 1792, John Wesley says that Francis Asbury is is now the head of the church. And there were already frustrations that O'Kelly and Haggard had about the Methodist denomination, but when this decision was made in 1792, they had enough. I've had enough. Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 says that Jesus is the head of the church, and that in Jesus all he is preeminent over all things. When James O'Kelly and Rice Haggard heard John Wesley had made this decision, they left the Methodist denomination. They left it behind them and never to go back again because they know and they, they, they believe and they had studied in their heart that the only head of the church is Jesus. The only head of Christ's church should be Jesus but now they had a problem they had a problem because when they left the Methodist church first of all they brought upon themselves much persecution they brought upon themselves uh, poverty because they were no longer being paid Just put that aside but they had a whole nother problem okay if we're not going to be Methodist then what are we going to be start to look at all these other denominations what what are we going to be? We have to be called something. We have to have some kind of moniker. We, we, we have to be aligned with, with some other group, but which one are we going to be aligned with? The problem that these men had was, where where do we go now? And when they tried to name themselves, they they didn't want to be called Methodists anymore, and Haggard, Rice Haggard suggested why don't we just go back to what the Bible calls God's followers why don't we just go back to what God's word says why don't we just start using the name God gave his followers so instead of being known as a Methodist or being known as a Baptist or being known as a Catholic or having the name of some denomination attached to them Haggard had this bright idea to suggest the name God's Word gives to followers. The name that the followers of Christ were called in the New Testament. What is that? Christians. Turn your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 56. Here we're going to find three different prophecies that, that God through Isaiah, spoke about the name that the church would have one day. Hundreds of years before the church was existing, Isaiah prophesies about a new name. In Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 5, it says, Even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. He says, I will give unto them a name. What name was that going to be? In Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 2, Isaiah says, The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. In Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 15, a couple of pages over, it says, You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name. What name is Isaiah talking about? And so as we go through the rest of the Old Testament, through the intertestamental period and into the time of Christ. We're searching for this new name which the mouth of the Lord himself was going to name. What name is that going to be? We find in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26, it says, And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. In Acts chapter 11, we see the, the, the culmination of this prophecy finally revealed in the scriptures this prophecy that hundreds of years ago was given down that that god was going to call his people by a new name and in acts chapter 11 we see it come to fruition when they say the disciples were first called christians at antioch but well, we can see it in acts chapter 26 and verse 28 when Agrippa was talking to Paul, Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to be a Christian. And lastly, in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 16, Peter says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. You see, the name that O'Kelly and Haggard were trying to go back to. The name that they were trying to attach to themselves was was completely scriptural. They wanted to leave the name that man had made behind. And they wanted to be Christians only. They were some of the first influential peoples that said, I don't care if you're Presbyterian, I don't care if you're Methodist, I don't care if you're Baptist, I don't care if you're Catholic. Whatever you are, Whatever background you come from, how nice would it be to leave all that behind you and just be a Christian? How nice would it be to be able to leave all that behind you and just just go by what God's Word calls followers of Jesus? How nice would it be to, to to not be called a Catholic anymore or not be called a Baptist or not be called a Methodist, but... To just go by the name Christian. That way when someone asks you, what do you believe? Who, who are you? You could just say, I am a Christian. You know, we look at that tonight as Christians. We look at that in this room tonight and we think, what's the big deal? But when O'Kelly and Haggard started teaching this, it was crazy talk. Not to have... The name of a denomination attached to you you know if you were to google just simply google the stone campbell movement that's what we've been given the title of the stone campbell movement if you were to google that it's likely that you'll see claims that the church of christ is just another denomination that split off of the presbyterian church off of the presbyterian denomination but well, why is that because if you look at Barton W. Stone, he was once a member of the Presbyterian denomination. If you look at Alexander Campbell, he was once a member of the Presbyterian denomination. So since these guys both were Presbyterian, and not only that, but Glass and Sandeman and Haldane and Ewing, all those in Scotland used to be a part of the Presbyterian denomination, they draw the conclusion that, well, this was just a split. This is a new denomination church of Christ but in actuality you and I know tonight that that couldn't be further from the truth that couldn't be further from the truth of what Stone and Campbell were trying to do and what all the restoration leaders were trying to do the restoration movement attracted all sorts of people not just Presbyterians we just talked about O'Kelly and Haggard they were Methodists and we we're going to talk about some Baptists we're going to talk about other denominations throughout our study The Restoration Movement wasn't about starting a new denomination. The Restoration Movement was about leaving denominations behind. The Restoration Movement was about leaving all denominationalism, all sectarianism, leaving it behind and being the Lord's church. If you remember back to our, our first study on the first night, the biblical basis for restoration, we said that one of the greatest restoration phrases throughout history is, we call Bible things by Bible names and do Bible things in Bible ways, right? This was one of the first times. This was one of the first moments, especially early on, where the restorers decided to do just We're going to be called a Bible name. What did God's Word call followers of Christ? I don't see the word Baptist. I don't see the word Methodist. I don't see the word Catholic. I don't see the word Presbyterian. I see the word Christian. And so O'Kelly and Haggard decided to call things by Bible names and do Bible things in Bible ways. I know when you think about this, it might not seem that important. It might not seem that important to, to go by the phrase that God's Word says to go by. What's the big deal? As long as you believe in Jesus, you can have whatever name you want. As long as you do what Jesus says, you can, have, you can call yourself whatever you want to call yourself. Well, is that true? You see, I think it makes a big difference. On what we call ourselves. Because that was the name the mouth of the Lord Himself was to name. When we go back to the prophecy in Isaiah, it matters a whole deal. It matters a whole lot to me that we call ourselves by the name prophesied about, that we call ourselves what the first century Christians called themselves. we think about how other people call themselves and, and other people name themselves by man-made names and by man-made denominations, we're supposed to be different. Followers of Christ are, are special and unique in a way that we're supposed to be different than all the other denominations. Instead of calling ourselves by some denomination, we call ourselves by the name of the Lord Himself, you know. One thing about we read in Acts 11 and verse 26. You know what? I didn't hear hear them call followers of Christ. The disciples were first called Church of Christ at Antioch. I didn't read that. It says the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. I don't know how many times in my life that i've heard a well-meaning brother or sister call themselves church of christ you ever hear this you ever hear somebody say i'm church of christ you ever hear somebody call someone else he's church of christ what's wrong with that i mean that's where we worship that that that's 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 the church that we're a part of why can't we call ourselves Church of Christ, as if it's a name that we wear. But because that makes and gives credence to the people that say we're just another denomination. That gives credence to the people who say we're, we're, we're just like everybody else who just split off another church and, and we're just like all the other denominations down the road. We're Church of Christ, you're a Baptist, you're a Methodist, we're Church of Christ. That's not the name jesus gave us when we do this we are guilty of speaking just like our denominational friends we have around us what a shame that is because christ is the one who redeems us christ is the one who saves us christ is the one who gives us salvation he's the one who forgives us he's the one who gives us the hope in heaven and that's why we wear his name you can't spell christian without christ And it should be the same with you and with me. Not only is this biblical name something that we find in Scripture, honestly, this name is something that our world is craving. Our world is craving being a Christian only and leaving denominationalism behind. Our world hungers and thirsts for religion without denominational baggage. You know how I know that? You know how I know that? How many churches are calling themselves non-denominational these days? You see that? We're non-denominational. We don't adhere to all the things that those denominations adhere to. You can come here and and not have any of that baggage to carry. And and you can come here and be a part of the non-denominational church as if that's some new hip thing to say every time I hear that it makes me cringe it it makes me cringe because the only non-denominational church is the church that Christ talked about in Matthew 16 and verse 18 the only non-denominational church is the church we read about in the New Testament before it was divided into more and more individual sects what is even sadder to me is when churches claiming to be non-denominational aren't actually non-denominational at all. The churches that claim to be non-denominational, if you look into it, if you research it, a lot of times it will say a Wesleyan church or a, a, a Baptist church. We've got an example of that right down the road, one of the biggest community churches in our area calls themselves non-denominational. If you were to drive up to their main campus, Kyle and Jay and I have done this just to see this uh, huge facility. You drive up to it and there's this 20-foot statue and you think, oh, surely that's Jesus or something when you drive up to it. No. You drive up to it and it's a statue of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church. Here they are claiming to be non-denominational. But we're going to have a statue of the person who started our denomination. That is the world we live in today. Brethren, there's only one non-denominational church. And that's the church Christ died for. The church of Christ. Tonight, with the rest of our study, we're going to talk about a person who had a lot of thoughts on this matter. We're going to talk about barton w stone barton w stone was born in 1772 and as i've already mentioned he was a part of the presbyterian denomination for a large part of his early life and as he was uh, growing and as he was studying god's word he started to find serious problems with their doctrine on all these different accounts instead of preaching presbyterian doctrine he started to preach simply what god's word and what the Scriptures said for themselves this is one of his quotes. He said, in, in retrospect, he said, I sacrificed the friendship of two large congregations and an ample salary. I preferred the truth to the friendship and kindness of, kindness of my associates in the Presbyterian ministry. Barton W. Stone says, deciding to go to God's word cost me a lot. But I would rather side with the truth and with even those kind friends that I once had. Just like Haggard and O'Kelly that we had talked about earlier, Stone preferred the name Christian over any other moniker. In fact, he and Campbell would go back and forth on what Christians should be called. Campbell also found a biblical name called Disciples of Christ. We're disciples all throughout the New Testament. But Stone believed that we should be called christians just like they were in acts chapter 11 being a christian was the only thing that mattered to barton w stone because he was influenced by haggard and some of the other writings going around the area at the time when we look at stone he also disagreed with some of the presbyterian doctrine when it comes to salvation and baptism especially infant baptism He, he disagreed with that wholeheartedly in addition, Stone believed just what the Scottish restorers believe we talked about last week, about congregationalism, about how each individual should be based, should base their faith and base their obedience and base their salvation off of their own salvation. From Philippians 2 and verse 12. And so these feelings, among others, led him to lead the charge in writing a very, very, very important document. One of the most important documents outside of God's Word is what Barton W. Stone wrote, the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbyterian. You see, Stone was a part of the Springfield Presbyterian, a group of of churches, a a group that would come together and they called themselves the Presbytery and they were Presbyterian. And all of these men, five others other than Stone, All of these men started to think about these things the same way at the same time. There's that providence we talked about last week. As they studied God's word, they started to read all the literature around about congregationalism. And so they draft what is called the last will and testament in the year 1804. You know what's important about that date? Guess what year Alexander set foot in America? 1809. So here we are five years before Campbell ever even makes it to America. When we think about the last Will and Testament, there are a few similarities that we can see to Luther and what Luther wrote in the 95 Theses. Basically, they're the, they're the same type of writing. This was something that was written in order to leave to leave denominationalism to leave certain practices behind. And so we're going to write this this document that is in complete opposition to the church, to the Presbyterian church. And this was a list of, of Stone's greatest wishes for the leaders of the Presbyterian church in Springfield, Kentucky. These were his greatest wishes that he wished the church would follow in the Presbyterian church. And the first will that he left this Springfield Presbytery, the first will that they said is, We will that this body die, be dissolved, and sink into union with the body of Christ at large. For there is but one body and one spirit, even as we are called in one hope of our calling. This was the first will we can find in the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery. What's important about this? Here he is in this, this presbytery. It has power in Springfield, Kentucky. It has power to make decisions and to render judgments and to tell people what to do. And what's important about this is Barton W. Stone and his, his friends and his contemporaries said, We don't want that anymore. We wish that this committee, this, this, this presbytery, be dissolved and that we, we, we die so that we can be absorbed into the body of Christ large what is he saying he's leaving denominationalism he's leaving sectarianism behind just like haggard just like uh, O'Kelly. leaving all of that behind in ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4 what does he what what does it say there is one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is above all and through all and in all before that it talks exactly what we saw in this in this passage in, in, in this last will from Barton W. Stone there is but one body and one spirit even as we are called in one hope of our calling you see what what, what can we learn from that when we think about the restorer Barton W. Stone he was using scripture as a basis for his plea. The second will continues by saying, We will that our name of distinction with its reverend title be forgotten, that there be but one Lord over God's heritage, and his name one. You see, at the time they were calling him reverend. Martin W. Stone and his contemporaries say, We're, we're nothing to be revered. We're nothing to be revered. Only Jesus is supposed to be revered. His name is one. Another will in the last will and testament says, We will that the people henceforth take the Bible as the only sure guide to heaven. And as many as are offended with other books which stand in competition with it, notice that, in competition with it, may cast them into the fire if they choose. For it is better to enter into life having one book, having many to be cast into hell. In this last will, Stone blatantly says that human creeds, human creeds do not complement the Bible. They compete with it. They're not something that goes hand in hand on the same level and 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 can be followed mutually and, and can be can be going hand in hand with each other. Stone says that these two things compete with each other. And obviously, yet again, in this last will, he borrows from Scripture. Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 through 30 talks about it's better to go into heaven without an arm or without without an eye than to go to hell with both your arms intact. This is what he says about the creeds. It's, it's better to enter into life having one book than having many and be cast into hell. The last will of the last will and testament it reads, finally we will that all of our sister bodies read their Bibles carefully. That they may see their fate there determined. What is he saying? It's not up for me anymore to tell you if you're saved or not. God's word reveals those who are saved. God's word is the one that makes the judgment. And so he says, and prepare for death before it is too late. He's telling his, 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 his friends and his contemporaries they need to make a change. Stone had a sense of urgency when it came to the Springfield Presbytery presbyterian church that change needed to happen and it needed to happen before the judgment could be unleashed because what they were doing as a congregation what they were doing as a denomination was not right they had departed to the right they had departed to the left they had loosened they had bound they had done all the things they weren't supposed to do and so stone please. Because of this last will and testament, you can obviously assume what happens to Stone and his contemporaries. They're obviously excommunicated from the Presbyterian church. They're no longer able to be called Presbyterian. They're, they're, they have to leave the church. But once Stone was detached from the Presbyterian church, he was able to preach God's word and God's word alone. So when it came to the issue of infant baptism versus faith baptism, he taught what God's Word says. He taught what salvation is all about. The more he was able to see just how distorted and how complicated denominationalism and sectarianism had become, had misconstrued the church to its original intent, he preached about it. Just take a moment tonight and realize all of this that we've talked about, about this last will and testament, every bit of this happened before he who alexander campbell was Barton w stone had never even met thomas or alexander before because you know this isn't the age of social media this isn't the age of telephones this is the age this is before the age of automobiles going from town to town and 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 they were in wagons just like the old westerns your parents watched When we think about Stone, his message spread like wildfire all throughout the states of Ohio and Kentucky. All throughout those states, and and thousands of people started to leave their denominations behind. Scholars say at some point before Stone met Campbell, there were already 20,000 people that had left the denominational world and started calling themselves Christians of the teachings of Barton W. Stone from God's Word. When we look at the life of Barton W. Stone, it's impossible not to see his impact. Not to see the impact that he had on the restoration movement. Again, when we think about this, as I said it last week, Campbell, it would have happened without him, but it would, might not have been as strong. Same thing with Stone. It, it, it would have happened without him, but There's no way it could have reached the heights it did without Stone. And when Stone and Campbell's movements merged, there was nothing that could stop the force that these two men made. It was this theology, these types of pleas in the last will and testament of Barton W. Stone that were the cornerstone of the movement we're studying in this class. I don't know how many of you have driven through Kentucky lately. got some Kentucky people, right? People from Kentucky. There's not much. (laughs) I'm just going to be honest with you. At least on the way to Illinois. On the way to my uh, in-laws. There's just not much there. Okay? There's an arc. There's a good basketball team. And that's about it. You know what else there is? There's a whole lot of churches. There's a whole lot of congregations of the Lord's Church. Same way in Ohio. And we can can look at the life of Barton W. Stone and say that he is a large reason for that. Tonight, as we try to take this lesson and make it mean something to our life, the the correlation I have tonight is, is very simple. Stone was sick and tired. Stone was sick and tired of being sick and tired when it came to religion. Stone was done turning a blind eye on the things that needed to be fixed. Barton W. Stone was fed up with the status quo that was never, ever truly challenged. He was dissatisfied with the blind eye that had been turned on the Scriptures, and so he did something about it. He sacrificed his reputation. He sacrificed his bank account. He sacrificed his popularity. He sacrificed his comfort. And he wound up truly being the one who set this movement ablaze in America through the last will and testament. The question I have for us tonight, for me and for you tonight, is if you were to write a spiritual last will and testament, would it contain? If you were to write a a spiritual last will and testament for, for, for your life and for your soul and the things going on in your life, what would you write? What are some of the things that you would will out of your life? Just like Stone willed out of the Presbyterian church. He wished that these things would discontinue, that these things would be dissolved, that these things would die. What would you write? in your last will and testament what are some of the things in your life that you would will into existence i will that i would be more like christ or i would have more of the fruit of the spirit or whatever that my case might be what what are the things spiritually you would will into your life tonight you see tonight as we look at one another every one of us has things that we need to lay aside Don't we? Every single one of us have things in our life, spiritually, that it's time to leave behind. It's time to write a last will and testament when it comes to my life. It's time to leave leave and lay aside all these different things that are weighing us down, things that we have known for a long time, no place in our life anymore we know it's time to take a stand Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 through 2 one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture Hebrews chapter 12 1 through 2 therefore we also since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us lay aside every way in the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God tonight what do you need to lay down what do you need to lay aside what kind of weight in your life do you need to lay down tonight what needs to be in your last will You know, sometimes it's hard for us, honestly, up front. It's hard for us to pluck that eye out, as Matthew chapter 5 talks about. It's hard for us to cut that arm off, as Matthew 5 talks about. But just like Jesus originally said and stone restated, I'd rather go to heaven than lose my soul over it. So tonight, what is your last will and testament? What do you want people to take away from your time here on earth? What things do you want to leave behind in your past? What things do you aspire for in your future? What an amazing concept for us to think about and ponder tonight. What will be said about our lives after we're gone? When when, when people remember us, Legacy will we leave behind? Will we even have a legacy to leave behind? Will we even be missed? This idea of a last will and testament is found in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 through 17. For where there is a testament, there is also the necessity of the death of the testator. For a testament is enforced after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Do you know that this is what Stone decided to use as an intro to the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery? This verse right here. And what he was saying is, unless this Presbytery die, this testament is useless. Sure enough, it died right then and there. was putting to death the sectionalism, the denominationalism that existed at that time. He was never going to look back from that point forward. What he was saying in concrete written form was that he was dead to this way of life. What are you willing to be dead to tonight? Romans chapter 6 talks verses 1 through 13 about how Christians are supposed to be dead to sin and alive to righteousness, dead to our passions, dead to our past, dead to our pride, and to be resurrected into righteousness. So what does your spiritual last will and testament need to say tonight? As we leave each other tonight, half of the movement has been formed with stone. What about that other half? What about those Campbells? That ship is on its way from Glasgow with Alexander on board, and he's ready to reunite with his father Thomas. But that story is to be continued. Let's close real quick in a word of prayer. Our dear, most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you again for our time of study. We pray that it's been beneficial. pray that as we look at our lives and our souls and our hearts that we can find the things that need to be taken away. That need to be laid aside that that need to be let down and left behind so that we can be more faithful children of yours that we can leave all the things that would hinder us from having communion and relationship with you it's in jesus name that can make that possible that